This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Conclusion Be strong and of a good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Joshua 1, 6-8 Turn neither to the right nor to the left. This passage makes an assumption, however. The listener is in fact moving forward. The person sitting down can obey the specifics of this law. He moves neither to the right nor to the left. He just sits. Joshua was not to sit. Neither are we. Modern Reformed churches have not understood that owning an accurate road map is not the same as using it to march forward. They preach Calvinism, but they also preach historical failure for Christendom. So have premillennial dispensationalists, but they have this advantage. They tell their followers that Jesus is coming again soon to rapture his people to heaven. This is an optimistic message of escape, not simply a message of psychological preparation for inevitable cultural defeat in history. Consider the Christian who hears two messages. In the first church, he is told that the world cannot be healed in history, but God does intend to rescue his people from the evildoers of this world. In the other church, he is told that there is no earthly hope, but God is not going to rapture his people. The first church has several thousand members, lots of programs, youth groups, a large building, and a gymnasium. The other church is tiny, has few programs, and has not grown for ten years. In this church, they preach Calvinist doctrine, which is unknown to most visitors and alienates most of the others. But this church also preaches that there are no specifically Christian solutions to the problems of this world. Now, which form of pietistic retreat from this world do you think will sell? Man is saved by grace, justification, not by doctrinal purity, for example, theological sanctification. So the person who selects the large church is no worse off. If doctrine is closely related to action, for example, inaction, with greater knowledge there always comes greater responsibility. Luke 12:47-48. Thus, hearing rigorously doctrinal sermons places the listener under greater responsibility. But if his church preaches that Christians are not given any unique solutions to real-world problems, then what difference does all the doctrine make? It merely places the listener under greater condemnation. He would therefore be foolish to remain in a pietistic Reformed Church. He should attend the equally pietistic Baptist Church, and he will. Christian Reconstruction preaches the triumph of Christendom. Its issue, it issues marching orders to an army that cannot lose in history. It has been the goal of the Christian Reconstructionists to move forward in every sense. We have tried to move forward exegetically, which is why we have published Bible commentaries. 
We have tried to move forward philosophically, too. We have tried to move forward culturally. We have done this at considerable expense, and I assure you, we have had neither encouragement nor much constructive criticism from those Christian leaders who are committed to sitting on the sidelines, let alone those who are moving either to the right, pietism, or to the left, liberation theology. We have not seen exegetical discussions that show us a better way to go. We have just been told repeatedly that the way we are headed is heretical, misguided, utopian, disworldly, tyrannical, legalistic, a delusive and grotesque perversion. Pick at least one. Westminster Seminary's Challenge Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, is a peculiar book. That is to say, it is a true reflection of Westminster Seminary's confession. The faculty is deeply divided regarding a biblically valid, positive alternative to theonomy. The extent of that division was never before so clear as it is in this symposium. I am not speaking here of their personal rivalries. I am also not speaking of disagreements over the proper application of this or that verse. I am speaking of a deep-seated opposition between two groups. 1. Men want to see the Bible's specific case laws applied to New Testament society, for example, Frame and Poitras, assuming we can ever get such judicial matters clarified, and 2. Committed pluralists who are aghast at such an idea, for example, Barker, Mether. Others are somewhere in between, still silent about the whole debate, despite the insertion into the book's title of the word, Critique. It is remarkable that they wanted this book in print. It is amazing how few of the authors come to grips with the applicational side of the Christian Reconstruction movement. They prefer to argue about the technical aspects of Bonson's hermeneutical formulation when they mention any theonomic literature at all. Several of the contributors did not mention anything. But the heart of the Christian Reconstruction movement is not its technical hermeneutic. It is one. It's called to rethink and rebuild the world in terms of God's Bible-revealed law. And two, it's called to a systematically biblical view of the covenant. Where was any discussion in the book of the biblical covenant model? Nowhere. Whatever happened to Machen's vision? Pretend that it is half a century ago. Imagine some businessman in Boondocksville, Texas, attempting to take on the entire faculty of Westminster Seminary. Young, Stonehouse, Murray, Van Til, and R.B. Kuyper. I skip over Paul Woolley. In the area in which he was technically competent, church history, he seldom wrote. Go back even earlier to 1930. Add J. Gresham Machen, O.T. Alice, and Robert Dick Wilson. What would be the result of such a confrontation? The businessman would have had his head handed to him. Not today. Machen set a standard of personal scholarship that influenced the creation of the seminary. He deeply believed in Christian scholarship. This faculty-wide standard has not been approached by any other evangelical seminary since its founding. My question is this. Can you imagine Machen's name as editor of Theonomy, a Reformed Critique? What has happened since those early days of Westminster Seminary? How can it be that one man, armed only with a word processor and his personal library, can create doubts about the competence of the Westminster faculty. For that matter, how is it that it took the entire Westminster faculty, plus the backup of ex-faculty members, to answer basically half a dozen men, and really only one, Greg Bonson, and then not even begin to answer him? How can such things be? 
I have a two-word answer. Edmund Clowney. When Edmund Clowney took over Westminster Seminary, it was the premier academic seminary in the Bible-affirming, English-speaking world. He ran it, and it shows. He broadened the base, and it shows. He staffed it, and it shows. He did not see to it that Van Til's legacy was maintained, and it shows. But it was more than Clowney. Clowney was only the symptom. When Westminster was founded in the fall of 1929, there was a far greater level of Christian influence in the United States. The spiritual capital base was much larger. The older Princeton apologetic still looked formidable to Christians, even though Kant had destroyed its foundations before 1800, Darwin replaced them in 1859, and Heisenberg had then begun the erosion of anything remaining in 1927. Van Til seemed radical back then. His message did not seem reasonable. Why? The humanist world was not really bankrupt. And then, one month after the seminary opened, the Great Depression began. Van Til was correct about neutrality. There is none. This includes judicial neutrality. But Westminster Seminary still does not recognize the magnitude of what Van Til achieved. It has not properly valued Van Til's legacy on the impossibility of neutral natural law. The choice remains, natural law theory or Van Til. The implicit answer remains the same at Westminster, natural law theory. Explicitly, they offer no answer except for Barker. Therefore, Westminster could not hire Bonson and had to fire Shepard. A Challenge to Theonomy and Van Til Those few critics, dispensationalists, who come to us, for example, who have gone into print in the name of a better pathway, have at least done their best to warn us about our deviant theology. They have committed themselves to marching forward. They have gone to the trouble of working out a roadmap with what they perceive as the biblical signposts. Their theology tells them where we theonomists have departed from the pathway of civil righteousness. Liberty University philosophy professor Norman Geisler is clear about the nature of our deviation. We have abandoned natural law theory and the doctrine of the rapture. He understands the inescapable burden of the person who rejects biblical law in the name of Christianity to put forward an alternative concept of civil law, for example, natural law. He has been willing to do this. Unlike the faculty at Westminster Seminary, he is not attempting to beat something with nothing specific. The demonstration that this proposed dispensational alternative cannot stand the test of biblical revelation and biblical philosophy was Van Til's legacy to the Church, in general, and Reformed theology, specifically. But at least they have identified the primary area of disagreement, natural law. They have denied that Van Til was correct on this point, and have then challenged our view of revealed law with an appeal to traditional natural law theory. Our response to these fundamentalist critics is threefold. First, where is your line-by-line refutation of Van Til? Where is there a book that demonstrates that Van Til was wrong about natural law theory? To go about one's philosophical business on the assumption that Van Til was wrong, but without publicly answering Van Til, is not sufficient. Quote, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. End quote. 1 Peter 3.15 This includes one's hope in the earthly future. Second, where is your body of published materials that shows how Christianity affects social theory and social policy? What is the distinctively Christian contribution to Stoic natural law theory that would make society Christian? In what ways will Roman Catholic social theorists in the scholastic tradition differ from Protestants who adopt the medieval synthesis of Bible and Greek philosophy? Protestants who adopt the medieval synthesis must also adopt the medieval concept of Christendom. 
Medieval theorists did not regard Christendom as baptized Stoicism. They regarded Christian civilization as a separate entity from pagan civilization, a unique civilization required by God and governed by Him. Neither the dispensationalists nor the reformed amillennialists have ever presented a comprehensive statement of what their respective social theories are. Third, where are your actual applications of natural law theory to the whole of culture? They do not exist. Why should they? The defenders of natural law theory today have no faith in Christendom. They regard the concept as pre-modern, for example, pre-Newton. They have no faith in the earthly future of the church. The costs of working out the outline and the details of their alternative to biblical law are too high. No one who thinks that such a task has no institutional payoff in the future is going to expend a lifetime of effort and money that it necessarily requires to complete it. Politics One aspect of society is politics. Here the American critics of theonomy like to appeal to the U.S. Constitution. This is a wholly legitimate appeal. James Madison and his associates removed any reference to natural law or natural rights from the Constitution. The appeal to natural rights was Jefferson's strategy in the Declaration of Independence. It was abandoned by the framers of the Constitution. There is no appeal to higher law in the Constitution, only an appeal to the sovereign agent, we the people. Over the last two centuries, it has become clear that a mere five people determine what we the people will allow. A majority of the Supreme Court, Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren Burger, drove home this point in a televised interview with Bill Moyers. Chief Justice Berger, quote, Constitutional cases, constitutional jurisprudence is open to the court to change its position in view of, of changing conditions, and it has done so, end quote. Moyers, quote, And what does it take for the court to reverse itself, end quote. Chief Justice Berger, quote, Five votes, end quote. So, we are still waiting. Our non-Vantilian critics have offered natural law theory as their substitute for theonomy. But natural law theory is just a phrase. The question is, what is the actual content of this theory? What, precisely, do we learn from this theory about how we are supposed to live? With respect to actual content, our non-Vantilian critics are still attempting the impossible, beating something with nothing. A Challenge to Theonomy in Vantil's Name Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, is supposedly written from the point of view of Vantil. At least, no one in the symposium explicitly broke with Van Til. The conventional reader who knows anything about Westminster will suppose that if any apologetic position is represented by this symposium, it must be Van Til's. The editors started in their preface that the contributors were all committed to, quote, a defense of the faith opposed to the autonomy of human reason, dot, 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 end quote. If this is not a reference to Van Til's defense of the faith and his multi-volume in defense of biblical Christianity, then the symposium's readers are being misled. This public confession created a monumental problem for the faculty. They had to show how they embraced Van Til's approach to the supposedly autonomous ethical theories of covenant-breaking man, yet simultaneously show there is a biblical alternative to theonomy that is consistent with the Bible, an alternative that in no way rests philosophically on a legal theory that is in any fashion dependent on common ground philosophy. They could appeal to common grace, of course, but not to Kuiper's version, Common Ground, or any other version that rests on the presupposition that man's autonomous reason can, let alone will, become a reliable source of ethical knowledge. 
The fact that Van Til never attempted to present this judicial alternative to theonomy is immaterial. The theonomists appeared late in his career. He saw his work as philosophical, not exegetical and judicial. This was a weakness on his part. Nevertheless, the fact that he neglected to deal with this glaring missing link in his system does not excuse his successors from dealing with it. They still refuse to deal with it in their symposium. It is this studied neglect that undermines their whole effort. The reader of their book should ask himself, page by page, argument by argument, quote, So, what is the proposed alternative? End quote. This is what the editors steadfastly refused to ask of every contributor. Specifying the biblical alternative to theonomy case by case should have been the primary assignment given by the editors to every author in the book. This was not done. Beating something with nothing. What then was the approach of those authors who at least understood the nature of their apologetic dilemma? They adopted an ancient technique that has been used by Western philosophers since at least the days of Abelard, 11th century. They took the Hegelian path, but one disguised as agnosticism. They said, sic et non, yes and no. They rejected Klein's position, itself offered in the name of Van Til and Amillennial Common Grace, and Bonson's. Theirs was basically this announcement, quote, a partial pox on both houses, end quote. Rush Dooney once called this smorgasbord religion, quote, a little of this, please, a little of that, but none of that over there. I never touch it, end quote. This criticism does not apply to the more hostile members of the Gordon-Conwell faction. They have no idea what Van Til wrote, as their essays indicate. They have never thought about natural law. They just vent their spleens on this or that practical application of God's law that does not sound politically liberal to them. Once again, let me ask this question. What were the editors thinking of? Where was their resolve to just say no? The editors admit that, quote, the reader will discover differences on secondary points, end quote, among the essays. It is my assertion that these differences are more than secondary. They, in fact, represent the utter absence of any consistent alternative to theonomy, as well as the absence of any agreement on how such an alternative might be developed, either intellectually or exegetically. The essays reveal a primary division within the Westminster Seminary faculty, even without a contribution by Meredith G. Klein. Douglas Oss has correctly noted the similarities between Klein's thesis of the common grace, intrusion period of the New Covenant era, and dispensationalism's church age, or great parenthesis. It is this radical discontinuity between the mosaic economy and everything that preceded it or followed it that is the theological basis of Klein's rejection of theonomy. Here is the problem facing Westminster Seminary faculty. How to break from Klein's near-dispensationalism without embracing theonomy? How to survive in the middle and still be called Reformed? There was a time when such a declaration was intellectually acceptable in Reformed circles, but not after Van Til destroyed the common-sense rationalism of the old Princeton apologetic system. Only those Reformed theologians who reject Van Til can safely reject both Klein and theonomy but only by appealing to natural law theory. Escaping Klein and Bonson, they are trapped either by Aquinas or Newton. But how can you embrace Aquinas without also embracing Rome? And how can you embrace Newton without also embracing Darwin, Heisenberg, and Mandelbrot? There is but one remaining alternative, mysticism. This is not a path to Reformed theologians, since Reformed theology is explicitly judicial. In short, how can you embrace mysticism 
and not embrace either the individualism of John Wimber's signs and Wonder's charismatic movement, or else Eastern Orthodox's communalism? And how can you build an explicitly Christian society on these non-judicial theologies? Intrusionism intruding. When push has come to shove exegetically, the Westminster faculty has always deferred to Klein. Klein, after all, is on the Westminster Seminary payroll. Bonson never has been. The seminary has already made its public decision. The overwhelming majority of its members prefer the ethical and judicial discontinuity of Klein's intrusion thesis to the continuity of theonomy. His intrusion thesis has the hallmarks of dispensationalism and in no doubt makes them feel uncomfortable. But it does not make them academic outcasts, spiritual wanderers crying in the fully accredited wilderness. If I am wrong, then all 16 contributors to Theonomy a Reform Critique will no doubt be ready to contribute another 16 essays to my proposed symposium. Intrusionism a Reformed Critique They will demonstrate exegetically how they have broken completely with his intrusionism, yet they will not cite a single Bonson-like argument to justify this break. The Institute for Christian Economics will pay for all typesetting and printing expenses, and it will donate one copy each to any 500 libraries in the United States. I just hope this project, once accepted, will not take 17 more years. This project will be accepted when shrimps learn to whistle. Conclusion The editors of Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, had a responsibility. They were to assemble essays by the Westminster faculty that would respond forthrightly to the substance of theonomy, meaning either, one, the work of the entire Christian Reconstruction movement, or two, Greg Bonson alone. Conclusion The editors of Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, had a responsibility. They were to assemble essays by the Westminster faculty that would respond forthrightly to the substance of theonomy, meaning either, one, the work of the entire Christian Reconstruction movement, or two, Greg Bonson alone. They owed it to their authors and their readers to specify which task they had undertaken. They did neither. The essays fire away at Bonson in an unsystematic fashion, yet Keller and Meether take on several Reconstructionists other than Bonson. The book does not present a series of concentrated point-by-point cases against Bonson's thesis, with each contributor using his specialized knowledge to attack one aspect of Bonson's thesis. Neither does each of the essays systematically survey a particular aspect of Christian Reconstruction as a whole. What we find is a slapdash collection of unfocused essays that for the most part have only one message. We just don't like theonomy. Machen left a legacy to Westminster, a legacy of moral integrity, personal courage, and impeccable scholarship, in that order. Meether's essay is a disgrace. No integrity. It shows recklessness, not courage. It shows zero scholarship. Keller's piece is only marginally better. The book as a whole generally reveals sloppy work, yet it took five years to get it out. Maybe my book is not great, but it took five months, and I typeset it, indexed it, and designed the cover. It doesn't take all that much to produce a reasonably coherent polemical book, and this is all Theonomy of Reform Critique is, a polemical book. It is not a work of scholarship. When Machen wrote a polemical book, he guarded his language. He knew what he believed, and he could defend impeccably what he believed. When he said something was true, you could bank on it. In an era in which banks were going bust, he told the truth about the Presbyterian Church USA, and very few people believed him. 
what he predicted would happen did happen. That denomination lost its soul. His ability to tell the truth and to be able to back it up with meticulous scholarship was basic to his reputation and his legacy. He hoped that Westminster Seminary would perpetuate this legacy. For 25 years after his death, it did. The first generation maintained that precious trust, though not his eschatology. Theonomy, a Reformed critique, has visibly betrayed that trust. It is cheap and relatively easy to betray a trust. It is expensive to regain it. This is Westminster's dilemma today. Once lost, a reputation for scholarly precision is very difficult to regain. Sloppy Christian scholarship, like trendier-than-thou neo-evangelical theology, is a glut on the market. Schlock, with footnotes, is still schlock. Westminster Seminary has now abandoned the legacies of both Machen and Van Til. What will replace these legacies? Meredith G. Kleins? If so, then whatever distinctives that Westminster still retains will soon be lost. It will become just another Gordon Conwell, but for Calvinists. But what else besides Klein is there? Those men who restructured Westminster, above all, Edmund Clowney and Paul Woolley, did not write very much. They left nothing behind except a restructured institution. They preferred to use their bureaucratic skills to achieve their goals rather than a publicly stated theology. They won. In this case, they are the spiritual heirs of theological inclusivists who captured Princeton Seminary in 1929 and the Presbyterian Church, USA, in 1936. But unlike the inclusivists of 1929 and 1936, the inclusivists at Westminster did it without getting caught. No muss, no fuss, just attrition and systematic exclusion. We have to give them credit. We ought not give them cash, checks, or money orders. Those faithful long-term supporters who have given money to Westminster Seminary and who have recommended that students attend the seminary seem to have noticed that the seminary is no longer the institution it was in 1960. Furthermore, it was not the institution in 1960 that it was in 1930. This is normal. Times change, and institutions must adjust or die. The question is this. Are the changes legitimate extensions of the institution's original principles? Those who support any institution because of their commitment to those original principles have a moral responsibility to keep asking this question and seeking a correct answer. There is no legitimate escape from personal responsibility when your money funds these changes. You cannot legitimately assume that these changes are peripheral or cosmetic. You have to investigate the nature of these changes and their causes. The more support that you offer, the more carefully you must examine the changes. If you fail to do this, your continued support will be taken for granted by those who are consciously engineering the changes, namely, the president of the institution and his board of trustees. They will assume that you approve of the changes. They should assume this. After all, you are subsidizing them. If you are not getting what you are paying for, you have a moral obligation to stop paying. You have read this book. Perhaps you have also read Theonomy of Reformed Critique. Do you approve of the changes? Do you think the school is what it once was, and what its faculty members insist that it is still? Namely, a Calvinist institution that is committed to the Westminster Confession of Faith and also committed to the principle of academic freedom? This much is certain. If Cornelius Van Til's apologetic method is correct, then we cannot successfully defend the truths of the Bible and Calvinism by an appeal to natural law theory. We cannot defend Christendom with pluralism. We cannot rebuild a civilization with sic et non. We cannot extend a great tradition into the future by inventing a mythical past. We cannot become culturally relevant as Christians by offering no explicitly biblical alternatives to a world 
that knows that it is in a major cultural crisis. Finally, no one should attempt to gain a reputation as a Christian scholar by faking evidence and lying for Jesus. All of this should be obvious. It was obvious neither to the editors of Theonomy and Reformed Critique nor to a majority of its essayists. One thing might have helped this book. The editors could have imitated Van Til. They could have written syllabus only on the title page. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.